good afternoon, depending on when you're listening to us. This is the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I'm being joined by regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, one of three reps from the town of Brattleboro. Hello, Emily. Hello, Olga. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. And welcome, Brenda Siegel, who is a candidate for Vermont governor in this November election. And it, you know, November seems to be coming fast, Brenda. How are you doing? I am doing well. It's definitely moving quickly, but I'm having a great time. So I want to just dive right in with a question that I'm asking all the candidates who have been coming on the show so far, and that's, You know, of all the ways that a person can serve their community through volunteering or or working for a service organization or something, why did you choose the path of elected office? You know, I do a lot of advocacy work and I also do a lot of that volunteering in the community and other ways. Uh, And I am watching people really struggle and suffer, especially around the issues that I work on most around housing and around the overdose crisis. And I see so many places where we have strong systemic barriers and we there, there are fixes to those barriers, even within just rules and within the inefficiency within the administration, which is why I chose to run and why I chose to run for governor. Thank you. We're going to talk about housing today, actually, which is something we've talked about on the show a lot, because in Vermont, it is, it is a, it's a thing. And I'm curious from your perspective, Brenda, given how much the community, the Vermont community and the state of Vermont has been focused on housing, what issues or what pieces of the conversation do you feel have been um, left out or where are the gaps in, in the conversation maybe is the way to put it? So the thing that has been really a struggle uh, is that the there needs to be both a short-term plan on emergency, transitional, and permanent housing and a long-term strategic plan on emergency, transitional, and permanent housing. And because we don't have this overall plan on housing, we're just kind of piecemeal throwing it together. And right now in the governor's office, there is a governor who doesn't want to put together that overall plan. He does want to put money in permanent housing, but the problem is that we keep ending up in a crisis place around the transitional and emergency housing, which really puts a stop in the forward movement on the long-term plan. Hmm. And so that's really where, and I, and I also see, I want to just add, I see our legislators working extremely hard on finding solutions, especially for low and moderate income families, and then having those solutions thwarted uh, by vetoes or by threats of veto. And that's the work that I think we can change if we have someone collaborative in the governor's office. Emily, I'm, I'm curious, uh, what Brenda said about piecemeal um, mm-hmm. kind of efforts or, or work really I find intriguing. Does that echo what you've been seeing in, from your perspective? Yeah, we have, um, we put a lot of money into the construction of long-term housing or the rehab of long-term housing. But as we've talked about before on the show that, or really anyone who's ever built anything, including just like a table knows it takes a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so 
while we are bringing more units online, it's going to be quite a while until we really see the full success of all of that money we invested. You know, um, we passed a bond before I was elected. So that was five years ago. I think we passed a house, a massive housing bond. It was the biggest one we'd ever passed. We're just seeing those units come online now and just having sort of the ribbon cuttings and the success of those. And that was, those were tiny investments compared to what we were able to do with ARPA funds. And so we have that long-term housing that's in development. It's exciting. It's not, it's still not as strategic as it could be. We're still not saying, we're not having the kinds of meaningful conversations we maybe could have about the policy changes we might need to make in order to develop long-term housing that meets everyone's needs. And we've talked to Chris Campany about that. And we've talked to Maura Collins about that before on the show. But we are not focusing as much as we could on affordable housing that sort of meets the different demographic needs that we have available. We're not talking about affordable housing, lowercase a and uppercase a, um, if listeners can follow that weird mm -hmm. way of describing it, um, sort of like legally, technically affordable housing mm -hmm. that just housing people can afford. Um, and so we're not, because we're in a crisis mode, we're not thinking as strategically and creatively as we could about the mix that we're aiming towards a decade down the line and what policy changes we need to make for that mix decade down the line. The work that we have done to do that decade down the line strategic thinking was a bunch, was a few bills that the governor vetoed last year. Right. Um, was the, you know, the rental registry bill, the Act 250 reforms bill, a few other pieces. And then the short-term housing, as we again talked about in the show and Brenda has talked a lot about um, publicly, the miracle of the COVID response here in Vermont was we said, oh my goodness, everyone deserves a place to live in the middle of a crisis. And we put everyone into emergency housing. And it was amazing, the health outcomes that we saw in Wyndham County from everyone having housing, even if it was like medium term or short term, it was still like you knew where you're going the next night. And throughout that entire process, all of the housing partners have been saying like, okay, what happens after this? We've been saying what's going to happen after that, Brendan's been saying what's going to happen after that. And the administration has twice come out very publicly, despite legislative action in another direction and said, okay, next week it's all going to end. Um, or okay, next month it's all going to end. And we know that that just happened a few weeks ago. We talked about it last week with John Walters. And then at Joint Fiscal Committee, we dove into it a little bit deeper yesterday. But through that process, you know, we've talked, I've talked a lot with Josh Davis down here. There's been a lot of work down here in Bloomington County to say like, okay, what's a medium term solution? Like, can we buy a motel to use as a medium term solution? Like, can we expand and stabilize our short term emergency housing responses so that they're livable instead of, you know, congregate housing on the floor, which is what we've used, um, you know, so just so Vermonters don't freeze to death. And we're that, I can talk more about sort of the compromises that the administration came to yet two days ago, but that's sort of where we are. Yeah, I would say add that, um, that that's been a huge frustration. So when this, I'm on the GA working group, so I know that they did not work with partners mm -hmm. before ahead of, of this announcement. They should have known, in my opinion, if they were doing proper planning and proper budgeting when the legislature was still in session and they could, and the legislature could have helped 
to um, make sure that people were able to remain housed through the winter. Uh, and when they did know, because they weren't doing that proper planning and proper budgeting in July, they did not come to the GA working group that they have right there with providers, with partners to figure out how do we move forward. And all of us really were working together. Even though I was in this election, I was continuing to work alongside in that group um, on that work. And, uh, and I got to the third, when we got to the 31st and that announcement was made, um, I really think it was around controlling the narrative because they knew it was going to be a disaster. And my concern is that just like someone in poverty who's in that situation, you're asking them to take their nothing and make a plan for how they're going to survive through the winter. Well, we should have been taking how little we had left considering the poor planning and figuring out how we're going to make sure that the people in the state are able to not only survive, but also be able to continue this, these health outcomes continue where they had found stability through the winter. And um, the administration did not give legislators in the session or the GA working group partners an opportunity to weigh in on how we do that work. And we might've been in a different place right now if that hadn't happened, if that had happened. Thank you. And Rinda, uh, sorry, just quickly, Emily, remind listeners what the GA working group is. I thought my was. <laughs> uh, it's the general assistance working group, but it's around general assistance housing specifically um, and emergency housing, really. But I, we, we dive deeply into transitional housing as part of that as well. And so community part, Josh Davis from Groundwork sat on it for a really long time. Um, he's not doing that right now. But what is I think really important to remember when the original GA, the GA rules were being rewritten to be more humane to before the pandemic. There was like a very active process to rewrite those rules during the pandemic because what the base rules are is that if you become homeless, you get a motel room if it's below freezing out and the weather is very bad or if you meet this like point system of vulnerability. And we talked about that on the show a long time ago, but it's like, it's kind of a wild vulnerability point system. Like, you know, you get like two points, and this is just an example, it's not the actual points. You get like two points for being disabled and three points for having a kid, but more points for a kid below the age of five and less points for a kid above the age of five. And like, it's just a little, the whole thing's a little wild. And it's not below freezing, it's below 20 degrees. Thank you. Um, so like freezing to death, not just cold, right? Yeah. So there's that. And, what I experienced when I was working in economic services and sort of like the front line of people coming in to apply for GA housing back when that was the system for applying for GA housing, people would just like spend their entire day checking the weather report to see if they were gonna have some more sleep that night. And it's not the weather in Brattleboro, it's the weather in Waterbury where they were making the decision. So- That's and an that, interesting wrinkle. So, and it's not the weather, it's whether or not the DCF calls it. Yes. And so that means that if they haven't called it on a Friday for a Saturday, but the weather changes on Saturday, then that decision doesn't change. So um, if it suddenly was supposed to be 32 degrees and now it's 15, that doesn't matter. And so all of that like wild, difficult irrationality. And in addition to like, it's irrational from the outside, from a policy perspective. It's also just like, it's, that's a lot to live with to know whether or not you're gonna have somewhere to sleep. And so they were rewriting the rules before the pandemic. And one thing that was very clear in that rewriting of the rules was that, the and why the GA working group was so important is that 
different community partners had very different resources available for their communities and were very available for different solutions. And that's been true through the pandemic where, you know, there have been conversations statewide. They're one of the reasons that the administration used for shutting, trying to shut down this program in the spring. Was that last spring, this spring? Yeah, they tried to shut down, shut it down in September, last July, September, and then October. October was when we stayed in the state house steps. So when that, the first time that happened, there was a lot of talk about how the motels weren't, um, motels didn't want to cooperate in this program anymore, and there weren't enough motel rooms. And that might have been true in Rutland County. It wasn't true in Wyndham County. Mm -hmm. We had great community partnerships in Wyndham County to keep people staying in the motels. And so the GA working group is really important, even if it turns out that we don't have the money available for this and we can't find the money to make sure that whatever solutions we're finding are solutions that meet the needs of specific communities and the community partners and the resources available. Mary Hooper at the Joint Fiscal Committee, who's the chair of appropriations, was saying that her community, the like greater Montpelier, Waterbury, et cetera, area, they don't even have like a drop-in overnight shelter for, you know, which, you know, we used to have in the church basement here in Brattleboro, but now Groundworks actually has like a fully sort of functional system at their actual shelter for that. And so those kinds of differences from community to community point to a really different transition plan that's needed. And the administration sort of announced this with no transition plan. So all that to say, like, good planning makes for good health outcomes. And we have been in that place of good planning. So Brenda, um, talk to us a little bit about what planning you would like to see or what planning you would hope to implement. Sure. In this emergency step, what I would have liked to see and what I would still like to see is that we there's a lot of solutions happening um, that we could work on. There is pods going up in Burlington that could have been built across the state and that probably still could if we did a little bit of work. Um, there are pallet housing. I don't know if anyone's heard of that, but the pallet housing goes up and comes back down. So also is good in national in uh, natural disaster. Uh, and then uh, there is also that our, our empty dormitories that could be utilized if we got so many empty dormitories. Yes. And so these are things that we could be using right now. And we could be taking some funding and making sure that we're going to get people through this time that that this mistake is. I really think it's our responsibility to the state's responsibility to address a crisis that happened because of this improper planning. I don't think that's fair to put it on the most marginalized people in the state. I think that's really problematic. Uh, And then longer term as governor, I would like to see us put together this short-term emergency plan before this housing that Emily talks about gets online. Um, that works on both the these kind of short-term solutions, these emergency solutions, and some transitional housing that makes sure people get to stay for long periods of time, longer periods of time, and can start to get their feet back under them with different service providers. With uh, you know, I when I slept on the state house steps for 28 nights last or 27 nights last year. Um, I was there with somebody who had been chronically homeless for six years, um, and he w- he talks openly about how that helped him being in this the stability of the GA program, and now he is finally in a single room occupancy. Um, that helped him, you know, access eye care and get glasses for the first time, and be able to um, access therapy um, for all the trauma that he experienced. I and mean, he saw a friend freeze to death. He 
it, there's real trauma out there for, for him. Um, and so I want to see us make sure that we build those wraparound services into the transitional short-term plan. And then long-term, I our plan needs to make it so that most people, when they enter homelessness, are it's a very temporary thing and that we have a way to transition them into permanent housing, including people that are difficult to house, which is, you know, often people with severe mental illness, um, folks who have no rental history. And so it's really hard to get them into housing, uh, people with substance use disorder with no barrier or low barrier housing, make sure that that is included. But we also have to look at how rents are skyrocketing across the state. Uh, that means that even people in middle income uh, settings can't find housing right now, can't be in the rental market. I met a mom with two kids whose middle income was no cause evicted from her home in Burlington and can't get back in the housing market, has been living in the car with her kids for a long time. Uh, and so that we're not just talking about traditionally pe people traditionally experiencing chronic homelessness. We're talking about a really broad spectrum right now. And so that those permanent housing solutions uh, need to be something that we look at as what is our actual need right now? What is our projected need for the future? Is the money that we've put into housing going to actually meet that projected need at the time that it comes online? And if not, what is our solution to make sure we get to that need? Uh, and then I, there has to be some studies done for, to put triggers in place for when, uh, for when we, if we find ourselves barreling down this same crisis again in the future so that we don't get to where we are right now, because where we are right now is not caused by the pandemic primarily. It is a long, it has been a long coming problem. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Brenda. Emily. Yeah. One thing, or I'll put this to both of you. One thing I always find interesting about a lot of our safety net programs, for lack of a better term, they they do they they might they always feel to me like they kick in too late mm. like they really want someone not want but someone really has to be at a very acute point of crisis um and then they they end too early like you get someone just a little bit stabilized and then the program might either taper off or disappear um i would love to hear from either of you a am i seeing that correctly and B, like, what kind of policy levers do we need to pull to, to kind of sort that out? Yeah, so I'm talking to people just, like, you know, similar to the family that Brenda described, who have been in the same, in some cases, have been the same stable rental housing for 20 years, were evicted because their building was being sold, had a lot of notice, had good relationships with their landlords, who are still the person who owns the building that they live in. Um, were asked to leave, had a huge runway, wound up being legally evicted because they had nowhere to go despite their intention to find another place and are now homeless. So that's sort of one category of folks that um, a small policy levers, small changes would make a big difference for. And then there's, you know, even actually the administration on Wednesday at Joint Fiscal Committee said, we know that keeping someone in rental housing, you know, subsidizing rent as rent skyrocket and people can't afford the rent is so much less expensive 
than paying for a motel nightly, which is the state pays, you know, right now is paying more than $180 a night for some folks. And let me tell you, these are not motels that look like they're $180 a night by any means, by any means. Mm -hmm. um, and actually some price gouging is like, you know, there could be some investigation of that right now. But so we know it's less expensive to keep people in their housing. We know a lot of folks are entering this crisis who don't actually have any experience with it. They don't know what the housing market looks like right now. They don't know what their options are available. Most housing support services don't kick in until you're legally homeless. And legally homeless isn't even like you don't have somewhere to stay this night. Like there's a whole universe where couch surfing doesn't technically count as homeless in some situations. And so absolutely, yes, that's true. And then on the opposite side, when someone gets even in temporary housing sometimes, the housing support services pull back. Not because actually the house, like technically um, the, someone's not eligible anymore. Most medium term housing at this point includes housing support services technically, but our housing support providers are so um, strapped and still quite underfunded. And so they're going where the crisis is because there's constant crisis because people are street homeless. So they're heading to the constant crisis rather than being able to put their energy into sort of the proactive planning with folks. And so if more folks were in medium term or even short term stable housing, housing providers would have more time and space and um, training even to be able to engage in that longer term planning with folks. So yes, it like both, both ends of the spectrum are not available in our system right now. And I would say that there's fam lots of families who are dealing with people who are difficult to house, struggling um, with substance use disorder or chronic mental illness or severe mental illness uh, or other issues and who have worked for years and years trying to find the supports that they need in our state and not been able to. And we're, that's also how their family members land there. Um, and so, yes, they aren't, those services are not kicking and they should have, they should have kicked in usually long before a person in that setting experienced homelessness. Uh, and it, they're just, the, the maneuvering through the systems when you have those kind of challenges is near impossible. I am, um, very well versed in and 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 able to maneuver through systems and still maneuvering through systems through economic services through other uh, areas is both um, uncomfortable, shaming, hard to keep up with, lots of paperwork. Like it is, it is not um, a really simple thing to do to get the, to get access to those services. Uh, and and if the family doesn't economically qualify for those services then um, and they can't find them elsewhere or they don't have private insurance to qualify for if it's mental health services, then then they don't have anywhere to go either. And so I think that there's gaps in wraparound supports that also put us in this place. But we know that housing is the first step to actual health health, whether it's mental health, whether it's recovery, whether it's um, physical health. So we know that we need to keep people housed regardless of how, how they ended up there. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Brenda. Um, we have just five minutes before the end of this first section. So I, I wanna make sure um, before we leave listeners, what is there any kind of strings that we've started to pull 
that we want to make sure we kind of tie up before we, we had to break. I think Emily talked a little bit about what was, I was at joint fiscal too, but Emily talked a little bit about what was um, talked about at joint fiscal, what they're, they found some money. Yeah. So, um, you know, the administration made this announcement a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of, a lot of shock um, because originally we really developed the plan for the housing and the housing wraparound services, the emergency housing money, the short-term, medium-term rental money with this absolute explicit intention that it would last into March so that when we got back into the legislative session in January, we would have time to figure out what the next step was. Mm -hmm. It was like a very explicit, actual, very explicit. proactive plan. And absolutely... <laughs> And absolutely understand that the money went out the door faster than anticipated. And, you know, the need was perhaps greater than anticipated. And that makes sense. And motels maybe cost more than anticipated because of price gouging, all kinds of things. And we did not have the time to figure out what's next. In sort of negotiations around all of that since the announcement and um, at Joint Fiscal, we, and the legislature has no power to appropriate money outside of the legislative session. So, and the administration doesn't really also have um, absolute power to move stuff from one line item to another either. It's a, there's like some fuzzy lines there that involve a lot of well-intentioned negotiation. Mm -hmm. And so more money was sort of found in other buckets that could be moved around the way that some of the emergency housing was funded can get sort of moved into a new bucket. There's all, the federal funding has all these strings attached. So more money was found um, in order to do the ramp down more slowly. That will really take us, I think from my perspective, except for one very strong caveat, fairly well into the legislative session where we can come up with a more proactive solution. And so I was glad for that. It's really, but that sort of positive collaborative negotiation and the need for that in order to find the funding and move it where it is really precludes the joint fiscal committee's ability to say like, what is going on here? How did you make this huge mistake and who is responsible? And so like that, like, you know, government accountability, legislative, like what you see sort of in Congress with joint hearings and like, you know, people throwing down the whatever, what is that expression? Gauntlet. Gauntlet, thank you. Like that's not possible if we also want the administration to find the money and solve this problem with us. And so that's like one of the most frustrating things for me in the last year about like the position the legislature and what I want to get done and how I want to meet Vermonters' needs. So we weren't able to do that, but we were able to find money. The money that was not found um, that I feel very all the feelings about, and I'm sure people whose lives this actually impacts feel way more feelings than I do is the fact that as of November 1st, folks who become homeless are October not first. What? October 1st. October 1st. Um, folks who be right around the corner, right around the corner. Folks who become homeless are not eligible for the like full motel housing that we've been providing through the pandemic. They are just going into regular GA rules at that point. And the regular year rules have not been ramped up the way that they need to be. And I would add that um, 
I am able to do a little bit of that um, and, and do um, and will and have been using my platform right now to do it because the reality is that this is a huge mistake that never should have happened. It should have been done a different way. And um, I, the legislature has to figure out a way to with, with the administration. So they're really stuck in this place. But we also have to speak out and say like, there's something wrong and there needs to be accountability. Um, that's on everybody from reporters to actually report that there's a huge mistake and um and people in uh and people like myself who are um challenging a difficult to challenge incumbent governor and saying like how the hell does your administration make a mistake like this uh and and you are responsible for fixing it Thank you. We are out of time for this first half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro. But stay tuned. We will be right back. to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and if you are just joining us, I'm speaking with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, as well as gubernatorial candidate Brenda Siegel. Welcome back, both of you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Just a reminder to listeners, you can find this show on WVEW, as well as a huge thank you to BCTV for all the work they do, uh, sharing our YouTube videos with the rest of the state, as well as Emily's YouTube channel, our Facebook page, and wherever you find your podcasts. Emily, what do we need to remind listeners of? Well, Olga, the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests. And not the station, nor the platform, nor their employers, nor friends, nor family, nor pets, just the folks on the show. And I don't think you need to mention my YouTube station. No one goes to it. It's just like a wait. <laughs> it's just where we hold the videos. So yeah, I think you can like stop them. adding that to the list. It's like there's like a few people who subscribe. I don't push it anywhere. It's just like it's just like a file storage system at this point. Okay. Now now I just have to learn new muscle memory. Sorry. I, and I don't know if the whole world needed to know that particular thing. I it in there. This is how the radio sausage is made, folks. Yes. Well, then yes. I make very yeah. complicated and data-driven decisions on our metrics for this show. We do. We do. <laughs> Brenda, before the break, you were talking about um, accountability. And I think that resonates with me right now because a couple of weeks ago when John Walters was on the show, who is the, the force behind the Vermont Political Observer blog, he and Emily and I got into a conversation about accountability and, and how can you actually do that in government when, you know, quite often the legislature spends as much time out of session, which changes their legal parameters and so for you, how do you plan on holding, or no, I'm going to ask that a different way. What would accountability look like for you around this issue? Uh, well, you know, I, 
I, <clears throat> I think it is complicated because they're actually in session less time than they are out of session. And unless you've advocated in the legislature or you've spent a lot of time there or you've served in the legislature, it's really easy to quickly be frustrated with things that aren't done or with the way that the sausage is made, uh, unless you actually know it. Um, and once you know it, there's a lot that you understand about the way that the connections when there's uh, are made between the legislature and the administration. And one of the problems that I see with the current administration is that they don't collaboratively work with the legislature. And that is a really big problem, specifically the governor. Um, and that's problematic because that means that in between that in between time when a governor could be collaboratively working with leadership, coming up with some solutions that maybe can be done in that off time, that that's a real opportunity. And instead of just making unilateral decisions about things that impact people's lives and that really sometimes undo the really hard work, like in this case of the legislature, uh, because they they have a clear intention and that can be undone when in the off session. And I've seen that happen. I don't think that's a common thing for that to happen with all governors, but with this governor that happens frequently. And so it's a big problem. And it really highlights how difficult it is for the legislature to move forward on issues that we all care about, not just housing, around the overdose crisis, around climate change. The legislature's really stuck not being able to move forward, not only because of vetoes, but also because of the way that their work gets thwarted in the off, in the um, time between the legislative sessions. And so um, one way that I think there is accountability has to be a clear commitment to um, from the administration, from the governor to work collaboratively with the legislature. Yes, they are different legs of government, but at the same time, they have to work together, especially when we have a part-time legislature. And then another piece is really- wait, 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 before, before you go to another piece, can we talk about that piece? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. So and I just want to be like explicit about that. So like, if a law is passed, whether the governor signs it or not, it becomes law, right? right? And when the law is passed, that is the will of the people. It's not the will of the legislature. It is considered the will of the people and is the administration, that's why it's called the administration's responsibility to administer that law. And the administration regularly just doesn't administer laws that are passed by the legislature because they don't like it but that's actually not like that's not how it's supposed to work and we don't have the structural capacity in the state to do anything about it right right and it's not been <clears throat> I, at least my understanding is that's not been a huge problem necessarily with other <clears throat> excuse me with other governors this is really a very unique uh to somewhat unique anyways problem with this governor is that he is like no if i don't want to do it i'm not going to do it and that's not how, that's not his job. That's not how it works. And then my, the, the second piece I was gonna say is that the press, I don't think does the, uh, the best job of keeping holding him accountable either. You hear in his press conferences, things that are very clearly problematic and we don't really dig deep 
in into them. And I wouldn't blame reporters. There's editor editorial decisions around the way that things are reported. And so I want to be really clear about that. We have some incredible reporters actually in our state that um, that are are very curious about some of these things, but but do um, have to follow what they're at. They, they work at a, at a place and they have to follow what their editors want to see as well. So um, that's really important piece of what needs to be done in in accountability. But the most important one is having a governor that works with the legislature and that is committed to carrying out the laws that the legislature passes. I would not anticipate as governor being 100% in love with everything that passes, although I was thinking the other day about if there's anything that's actually made it across the finish line that I didn't like by the time it got to the finish. I was talking about this um, at an event. Um, and the reality is that there's a lot of robust discussion during the legislative session, but I don't think there's anything that's actually crossed the finish line, at least in the last few years, that when it, that actually got to the governor's desk, that was something that I, that I wouldn't have agreed with by the time it got there. Oh, there certainly is for me. So I'm Where's really impressed there isn't for you, but I, we don't need to get into like my <laughs> bill list. You're actually planning on doing a show with John Walters about that in the spring and we never. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I, and, and there's about. probably ones I'm missing. Yes, we might have just like, like Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but like the ones that I've really not liked, like the ones that I've been like, this is a terrible bill. I don't don't like it. Those ones have not made it to that point. And so would there be a bill that got to my desk as governor that I was like, mm, I'm not really into this? Probably. But would I veto it? Probably not. I and if I was going to, the legislature would have known in advance that this is a non-starter, that there's something that, that we need to do some work around it um, before. And that's part of the problem is that they, with all of these bills, including around housing, that the legislature kind of has to guess the governor's position and whether or not he'll sign the bill because he's not really saying like, he says, I'll wait and see when, until it gets to my desk. And that robs Vermonters of progress. Because if he was coming to the table, we would all get to see the positive impact of the work that is being done. Well, I, I like that point, Brenda, because I think one of the, the frustrations I sit with, with the number of vetoes that Governor Scott <clears throat> has put forward, but also I think vetoes in general, we don't have a lot of time in Vermont to get work done in the legislative session. It's fairly short. There's a lot to do. And it feels like a lot of wasted effort if if the legislative the legislature goes through all this work to create a bill and it's just going to die at the governor's desk. It's like, could we have put that time to something else or making a better bill or so for me it just feels like wasted time as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, if he said I'm absolutely never gonna sign a, this bill, period. I I mean, I, doing having done a lot of advocacy with the legislature, I, I think they probably would, in many cases, not all, would be working on something else that he would sign because they have a real commitment to getting things across the finish line um, and getting them signed. So sometimes to my frustration, that's sometimes where my frustration really goes. <laughs> um, but uh, but the, that's the, the reality of our legislatures that they want to move things forward. Um, sometimes I want to you know, if, if he's going to be obstructionist, I wanted people to see that. Um, but, uh, but 
that's accountability to me is for us to really clearly point out what's going on here. Thank you. Um, I want to shift back to housing again, if you guys don't mind. We talked in the first half about, you know, the really deep need to shore up a lot of our crisis housing programs and making sure people have the supports and the wraparound services they need. But what I find interesting about Vermont as a whole when it comes to housing is we have a lot of issues with housing across a broad income spectrum. And especially right now with the pandemic and a lot of rents going really high and a lot of housing prices going very high, you know, people who have traditionally been thought of as like middle income, who, you know, maybe can't afford the best housing, but they're they're not worried about being homeless, suddenly are finding themselves in a much more precarious place um, between prices and what's available on the market and that type of thing. I would love to hear your thoughts, Brenda or or Emily. What conversations are happening around kind of that whole life cycle of mm-hmm. of housing barriers that we we can have in the state? Well, first, I'd say I I think there's this um, particularly American phenomenon that is um, rampant in Vermont for the idea that everyone wants to consider themselves middle income and in fact aren't. I think there are a lot of people who consider themselves middle income who are definitely, you know, um, owning class or wealthy. And there's a lot of people who consider themselves middle income who are working class and really would qualify for capital A affordable housing, not just lower A affordable housing. I absolutely understand sort of the cultural constructs that keep folks from wanting to be in something that's like considered government subsidized or a program or anything like that. But I think we have less people who are actually middle income Vermont than we think we have. That said, we also don't have a lot of housing for middle-income folks. And some of the conversations that are happening around the state to do something about that is that we know we have a lot of folks aging in place in fairly large homes that they don't necessarily want to live in because there's like a lot of shoveling and precarious walkways and all of, you know, I think about my dad coming to live with me and like how he would never be able to walk out my door because of how uneven the ground is between my house and the driveway, right? So there's like that kind of stuff that's all over Vermont. And there are conversations about what it would look like to create middle income housing that is for older Vermonters who want to age in place that is sort of communal but independent. And so there are conversations around that, a lot around um, downtown infill. Mm -hmm. And we passed and was vetoed um, a set of legislation to really um, incentivize that downtown infill. And you know a lot about that in your work life too, Olga, which I feel like I'm gonna do a little disclaimer on the show, which I don't know if we've done before. Olga works for a housing development partner now. Um, oh, in, yes. In I have done that disclaimer before, but it's been a while. Yes, so I feel like it's relevant to the show. So I just wanna like name that. Yeah. Not that you were keeping it a secret. I just like all of a sudden I like I thought of it, so I thought I'd say it. And so there's that infill work that's happening. There's a lot of work around a lot of towns, and this is not true in Brattleboro, but this is true in most towns in Vermont. It's only not true in Brattleboro because Brattleboro sort of been doing the work a little bit longer because we've had a house like an explicit housing crisis a little bit longer, mm-hmm. um, where zoning really prevents duplexes even mm-hmm. or. Um, multi, you know, like a house, a farmhouse being converted into three apartments, that kind of stuff where um, even just using existing properties can't be subdivided 
or where land couldn't be um, divided into more housing. And so that zoning that prevents denser housing development um, that I think was originally, on some level we could say was originally passed to keep farmland intact, but I think it's probably more likely it was originally passed. I am sorry, listeners. Oh, oh, there she is. She's back. Oh. I, we heard originally passed to keep farmland intact. Yeah. Oh, was probably like also there's like a lot of, you know, white, whiteness and, um, you know, middle class norms around mm-hmm. that. Like, you know, you don't want too many people living together. So doing a lot around um, zoning for density, doing mm-hmm. a lot around downtown infill. Mm-hmm. You know, even Brattleboro, so many places were building slightly higher where vacant lots could be developed, that kind of thing. Um, and so that's a lot of what we're talking about for missing middle. But what we're right. not talking about, and I want to talk about, is the enormous number of homes that said vacant in Vermont. Mm-hmm. Yes. And also on that front, I want to just say before I go move on, actually, that the, a lot of times when you say build up at all and that people hear sky rise, <laughs> Um, and nobody is, I mean, people have said, so you want to build sky rises in Burlington and Brattleboro? And I'm like, no, I'm also, I grew up here. I want like a second floor um, at the bottom of high street that like has a damp studio and a gallery in it. Like just the other day, I was like, why is that building only one story? It could be three stories. It would make more sense in its environment because buildings on both sides of it have more Mm -hmm. stories. Right. And with housing that people can afford in it too, um, because sometimes those, those, that type of housing gets built up and doesn't have that. And so one of the things that I would, a couple things for affordable housing, there are places that have made every new build has had 25% um, of it be low income housing or, and some, some uh, qualify for people who are transitioning from homelessness. That has actually made huge dents in uh, the experience of homelessness and people's mobility around states and around countries um, in other areas. And so it's something that I think we could look at. And then also um, cooperative housing Mm -hmm. is something that's really some of what Emily was talking about, duplexes, triplexes, um, even like multi-unit apartment buildings where people can actually co-op and own the building or own their unit um, that that's a way to address middle and even low moderate home ownership. Uh, and then in addition, um, if we talk, we also need to talk about those places that are sitting vacant, including short-term rentals. Uh, you know, I've been asked over and over again, should short-term rentals be regulated? And the answer is yes. If there is a, uh, if you're having, if you're renting in your own house, an in-law apartment or a room in your own house, that's different for a short-term rental. But if I'm in Newfane and people are buying where I live and people are buying up whole apartment buildings and that's the only few apartment buildings, then that's unacceptable in terms of, um, in terms of our long-term rental crisis if we don't have some regulation around it, if it isn't at least bringing revenue in where we can make up some of that, um, some of those gaps in housing. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Brenda. There was a term on your website that I actually wasn't familiar with. So I'd love if you would, at least for my own um, education, would explain to me. I saw the phrase, um, I think it was address zoning, address zoning. Uh, Or was that meaning? I think it was address zoning. 
there might, I'm wondering if there was a spelling error, but okay. <laughs> I think it was address zoning, which is what Emily was just talking about. Gotcha. These zoning, these zoning issues in general. I now I have to go back and look if I, if I have a spelling error on my website. Could have been uh, having a dyslexic moment too. That uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, what Emily was talking about, it's not that we are so supportive in our state of our local control of a lot of things. Um, and some of that is great. And because we do have different needs in different areas and we shouldn't ever be in a place where we're able to say like, yes, we need more housing, but not in my backyard. Mm -hmm. That should not be something that we are doing in this state because what it does is leave our neighbors, our community members, our children to experience homelessness or in, in including uh, folks who never thought that they would in their lives, who really, you know, who had a severe injury at work or had, you know, really, um, and it allows us to grow a stigma around struggle that I think is not healthy and not true about people who are struggling, struggling. And we do a lot better when we have mixed income housing, that when people are really able to have those kind of experiences where they are, you know, around folks who generally folk, people have stigma about and learn that those stigmas are our biases. They're not reality. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a lot, you know, I watched when we were sleeping on the state house steps, I watched uh, Josh be asked multiple times uh, if he had a math problem actually. Um, and like three sentences, they asked how he became homeless. He would start to talk and three sentences in someone would ask if he had a meth problem or a drug oh, problem or a, so offensively, they felt really onerous saying it. And I felt really defensive, you know, watching somebody be treated that way and knowing him. Um, but that's not uncommon. We walk by people who are struggling. We never even ask anything about their lives. And so this idea of mixed income, this idea of cooperative housing, this, all of these help also and changing our zoning rules around uh to not really allow that type of type of nimbyism mm -hmm. help us to build stronger communities overall because those biases are not healthy for our communities either mm -hmm. and that doesn't mean that anyone wants to turn like all the farmland into tract housing like that no. is not at all. like first of all we do not actually have the wastewater infrastructure to be doing that in the first right. place or the population at this or point. the population <laughs> It's really is. It's about downtown infill. Yeah. It's about places where it is possible, where there already is development, adding further development. It's about like that affordable housing needs to be mixed so that everyone can see themselves in it and everyone can feel comfortable in it. It is. It's about cooperative housing so that folks aren't in that position that I described where they feel like I don't qualify. I'm not interested in a capital A affordable housing because it means the government's going to be in my business, right? It's about making sure that Mountain Home, which is a cooperative mobile housing park, has the resources that it needs and the policies that it needs for the residents there to thrive in their independence. It's, there are so many options available and we can mix them all together in Vermont to make it work. Thank you. Um, we have just five minutes left. And I, so I want to turn to um, Emily's very favorite question that I've been asking all the candidates. And that's, you know, Brenda, if there was one policy that you feel could make Vermont work better for everyone. Doesn't have to be housing, just one policy. What would you like to see enacted? 
you know, that's just so tough for me because I think in such an intersectional way um, and I just don't know how one thing would change everything. Um, so I'll go this way. I wish, would like to see us look at all legislation um, with sort of a test of who does this harm and who does it help and make sure that we're not harming. Sometimes I think more marginalized people end up harmed with legislation um, because it's the best that we could do. And I'd love to make us look at that and have a real will to say, we're not going to put legislation through that has that outcome. Even if it's the best we can do, we're gonna find solutions for, for that. Because I do, it's same with the housing. I think that that really puts us in a place where, where we, can end some of that stigma around and that bias that we have, implicit bias that we have around people who are marginalized if we really intentionally change um, change the way we look at policies. And I think in the governor's office, what you can do is change who gets, make sure the people who get to lead in these administrations both have the experience, but also there's a lived experience aspect um, in, and we have a bench of people of diversity. We have a bench of LGBTQ folks. We have a bench of black and brown folks. We have a bench of women. We have, we have a bench of um, all these folks that, and, and BIPOC, you know, indigenous folks that can be part of an administration that can make change. And so one thing that I'd like to see change is intentionally diversifying the leadership and the administration and the way we look at legislation overall. Brenda, thank you. Um, anything else you want to leave listeners with before we? Yes. If you'd like to learn more about me, you can go to my website at brendaforvermont.com. We are at the end of the a long run for governor, <laughs> and uh, and we need help with letters to the editor, contributions, and also uh, if folks can uh, write on their front porch forum because it's time for us to have change in Vermont, and I'm excited to bring you all with me. Thank you, Brenda Siegel, gubernatorial candidate. And Emily, where can people find more information if they want to be in contact with you? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org where you'll find links to my social media accounts, my email address, phone number, et cetera. I have not updated the website as recently as I should because I've been busy doing other things like this great show, but that is a great way to get in touch with me and see what else is going on. Wonderful. And as always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP. LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, as well as our Facebook page, our Captivate page. And you can always drop us a line at the Montpelier Happy Hour at gmail.com. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye.